So I've learned whenever you teach about money in church, there's three myths you have to debunk before you can even get started, okay? So I'll debunk three myths. The first myth is the only reason, Pastor Bob, you're teaching about money is because you want offerings to go up. Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. This is a very generous church, not because we're wealthy by any means, but because you guys love God and you're cheerful givers. And we all kind of have this ingrained value that where God guides, he provides. We've always done well financially, and so that's the last thing we would ever do. The second myth is, why in the world will we waste a Sunday morning talking about money? Why don't we talk about something spiritual? Uh, the last time I checked, everything is spiritual, okay? Uh, researchers tell us that you and I spend 50% of our day thinking about money, how to acquire it, save it, how to get bargains. Uh, anybody ever argue over money, couples? Anybody? Yeah, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi are arguing over money, aren't they? I thought of a cruel answer to politics. I thought, what if we made Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump live for all of eternity together? Wouldn't that be an interesting, <laughs> cruel thing to do? Yeah. Uh, Randy Alcorn believes one out of every four verses in the Bible uh, has to do with money in some regard. Jesus used it to teach spiritual truths in many of his parables. Money is amoral, right? It's like technology, your cell phone, your car. Uh, it, it, it doesn't do right or wrong, right? It's inanimate. The greatest misquote in all the world is that money is the root of all evil. If you're a Bible reader, you know that it's the love of money is the root of all evil. Money behaves, it'll, it'll do what it's told to do. And so it's tied to our character and who we are, and in many ways it's tied to our spirituality. And then the final myth is that if I'm stuck financially, it means that I'm broke, I don't make enough money, I'm under or unemployed, have a mountain of consumer debt, facing bankruptcy or some other financial ailment. Again, nothing can be farther from the truth. Uh, Genesis to Revelation, I could show you wealthy people who were stuck financially, and I could show you poor people that were doing quite well. Okay, so uh, this cuts kind of across the board to all of us, and finances is an area that we all can get unstuck. Now, when I started crafting this series, I thought this would be the most practical of all messages, but God redirected me, because I thought this through. I thought, if you need practical ideas, I've taught on this many times, and uh, you just take Dave Ramsey's course on Wednesday, and if you're busy on Wednesday, you can buy his book. He'll give you all the practical things you need to know from a Christian perspective about money. I want to drive in another direction. And I want to start off by telling you, you as a human being, first and foremost, are a soul. You're a soul and I'm a soul. When God created human beings, he breathed into them what the Bible says was the breath of life. It was nefesh, N-E-P-S-H in the Hebrew, which is breath or a living spirit. It's what separates us from everything else on the planet. It's why we have dreams, desires, and longings. It's why we were told to subdue the earth and have dominion. Now, Hindus believe they have souls, but they're trapped in a body. So nirvana for them is to get rid of the body and let the soul emerge. Other religions believe that we are bodies that contain souls. Christians believe something far different. We believe that we were made in the image of God, so we are like God. What is God? Well, think of the Shema back in Deuteronomy, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? He's one God, but we know he's one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So like God, you and I are also a tri 
being, okay? So we are spirit, soul, and we are body. Uh, your soul is what integrates or connects and binds together all the other things. It binds together your will, that's the seed of desire. It binds together your mind or your thoughts. Your emotions are your feelings. And then you have bodily impulses and attitudes, right? Many times in the Old Testament, specifically the Psalms and prayer rooms, you'll, you'll see things about the heart, right? Uh, he's a man after God's own heart or, or a man's heart plans his way. The heart is the mind, the will, and the emotions. But all of these three are together. David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, now get this, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. I already quoted the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, he's one God. And then it goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your soul, strength, and mind. One of the freeing things that we discover about God, and this is apart from religion, if you understand what I'm saying, is that we can worship God with our entire being. Some people have really been free when they understand, oh my gosh, I can worship God with my hands. It's not one hour on Sunday. Whether I'm a plumber or a surgeon or an artist, think about through history the people that have influenced the world with their hands. Others with their intellect. The great thinkers and philosophers uh, who have not checked their mind at the door but, but have just given us these wonderful things. And then, of course, the body, right? We can glorify God with the body. Uh, I think of chariots of fire when Eric Liddell runs. He said he feels God. And we look at scripture and, 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 and God loves when we do what we do. Hebrews 4.12 says this, that the word of God is sharper and more powerful than any two-edged sword. Here's why. Only the word of God can do this. It can pierce even through the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What that scripture is saying is we are so intertwined, spirit, soul, and body, that only God's word can get through it. This is why you can't be spiritual or whole if one area is out of whack. Uh, I'll give you a rude illustration. Hard to be spiritual when you have the stomach flu. Now, I'm a whiner when I'm sick, okay? When I have a stomach flu, I lay in bed and I whine. I don't even care if God exists. I just want to know the toilet seat's up in the bathroom. That's all I want to know, right? <laughs> Went to Egypt one time, and we took every precaution. We boiled food. We were in the best hotels. We had 60 people on this trip. 45 people got the bug, Pharaoh's revenge, right? And I got to tell you, and it came upon me, and I want to say, we would go to sites. Like, there was a statue of Ramses the size of the stage. And we would go to the pyramids, and no one cared. All you cared about, where's the men's room? Where's the ladies' room? And how fast can I get there, right? Hard to be spiritual when you're $50,000 in debt. Um, you could be feeling wonderful in your body, but if sin is in your life, it'll wreck you. David committed sin with Bathsheba, adultery, right? Do you remember what he said? It was like rottenness in his bones. So we are physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally intertwined. Peter gives us this warning in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, dear friends, I urge you, as pilgrims and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. Watch this. They wage against the soul. Sin disintegrates and obliterates wholeness. Now, what do we do with desire? And here, here's where money is going to come in. We have desires. Peter warns about desire. 
What do we do with these desires that we have? Uh, I want to show you something that I learned years ago. I didn't come up with this. Uh, Larry Crabb, uh, I saw him do this. I have no idea where you can find it, but it has served me really well. Larry broke desire down into casual, critical, crucial, and core. Let's start with casual uh, desires. These are oriented towards things. So I have a golf ball there, if you can see it. I have a casual desire. I like to play golf. Gets me out with guys in nature for four hours. Uh, it's competitive. It's something I enjoy. You might like movies or sports or music or kayaking, whatever it is you like. And we spend our money on casual things, right? The deal here is the reason why it's casual is if I don't do it, it's not the end of the world. Now, if I don't golf, I'll get a little cranky, right? In fact, when I'm cranky, my wife's like, you need to go out and play golf, right? So it's something I enjoy, but it's not the end of the day if it doesn't happen. But when we go down, there are things that are critical to our soul. I have a picture here of a jerry can. If you travel the world, this is what they use in third world countries or developing countries to carry water, clean drinking water. And the reason I put that there is I've been pushing this book called Thirst, story of Scott Harrison, who was a nightclub promoter in New York and built one of the biggest charities in the world to bring clean drinking water. And man, every person's telling me it's a page turner and I promised your money back if it isn't one of the most inspirational books you've ever read. Scott found the reason he was put on the planet. Critical desires is to make a difference, to contribute. It's probably what you do 40 to 60 hours a week, whether raising a family or in your career. It's why I spent a whole week on being unstuck at work. But then there is something greater. It's called crucial desires. Crucial desires is the desire for intimacy. Spent a whole week on relationships. We were designed for connection. The soul was to connect with God and others. And I have a picture there of an engagement and a wedding ring. That is, you know, a union forever, but we all need friends. We all need each other. We all need community. But at the core, our desire is to be connected with God. If you don't believe this is true, if you think we're only natural and physical, why is there transcendence in us? Why is there a moral code? Why, when you travel the world, no matter where you travel, there's a sense of right or wrong? We may disagree on what's right and wrong, but there is a sense. Why is there a transcendence for us to connect with something greater than who we are? Francis Collins wrote a book called The Language of God. He was an atheist, raised an atheist. He's one of the most brilliant men who's ever lived. He's part of discovering the human genome, which we know as DNA. In his late 20s, he began to look at the world and he began to conclude there must be a God. When he looked at the anthropic principle and how everything works together, he started moving towards God. But it was really this transcendence uh, that made him think there has to be something greater. Now, we know from the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity within our hearts. God's created a void in us where unless we commune with him, life doesn't really make sense. Listen to what... Um, Francis Collins wrote, he said, evolutionary arguments, which ultimately depend on reproductive fitness as the overarching goal, may explain some parts of this human urge toward moral behavior, especially if self-sacrificing altruistic acts are done on the behalf of relatives or those who we might expect some future gain. And the other idea is if we do something nice, right, it's only because somebody's going to do something nice for us. He said, 
Um, but all the evolutionary models lead to the requirement for reflexive hostility to outside groups, and we humans do not seem to have gotten the memo. It's quite the opposite. We especially admire cases in which individuals make great sacrifices for strangers. Think of Mother Teresa, Oscar Schindler, or the Good Samaritan. We should be somewhat skeptical of atheists who dismiss these acts of radical altruism as some sort of evolutionary misfiring, something went wrong in the machine. If these noble acts are frankly a scandal to reproductive fitness, might they instead point in a different direction, as argued by philosophers through the ages, toward a holy, loving, and caring God who instilled the moral law in each of us as a sign of our special nature and a call to a relationship with the Almighty? Wow. See, that's at the core who we are. Now, this is where we all go sideways. This is where we all get stuck. This is where life doesn't make any sense. Sin, in all of our lives, is misplaced desires. Sin is misplaced desires. Let me tell you how it works. When we take casual desires, these things that are just secondary to our lives, and we make what's casual critical, things go sideways. When I'm restless in my spirit, and so I think the answer is to go watch a movie, that can be okay. Wow, that movie was great. I learned a few things. It inspired me. But if I binge watch for eight hours, that's not good for my soul. That's not what God desires. It's never going to fill me. When the casual becomes critical, it leads to idolatry. And idolatry is not a figure on a dashboard or a golden calf. Idolatry is when we replace what only God can fill with things. This is oriented towards things. And it leads to addiction because you need more and more and it never satisfied. That's what happens when the casual becomes critical. When the critical, my life's goal becomes crucial, I overwork, money becomes a goal, I lose friends and family. When the crucial intimacy with human beings becomes core, I look for love in all the wrong places, I have affairs, and God gets misplaced. Life goes sideways when we mess around with what the soul really needs. And I could play this game all day. I chose just to go down the ladder. I can go from here to there, and I can move all these around. But basically, this is what's wrong with most of us, and this is how we get stuck. <coughs> See, at the end of the day, your restlessness is God trying to bring you to himself. Yes, there's others. Yes, there's casual things that we do. But at the end of the day, desire is an invitation from God to enter the beauty of God, an echo of what is good and beautiful. So no matter what you desire, no matter what is the extent of your restlessness, no matter how well or how poorly you're doing in life, every desire should be seen as God's call to your soul for both union and distinction. The restless in you is God trying to bring you in, and not only with union for him, but listen to this, distinction. See, religion's about conformity. We'll all wear white shirts with black ties and black pants. Christianity is we're all distinct. There are 32 flavors at Baskin-Robbins. The next week when I talk about church, I'm going to get into this. There's no way to do church. There are some elements, but the beauty of history of the church is it's been done many different ways. At our men's retreat, uh, Parker Green came out. He has salt churches. These are micro churches and homes. It's beautiful. 
And even within ministry and life, there are so many distinctions God has made for you and me. Now, again, money comes into this because money allows us to mess up what's good for our soul. Money allows things to take precedence over people and even God. So what I've chosen to do this morning is I'm going to walk you through three pieces of Scripture. Two parables that Jesus taught and then something Paul wrote to Timothy. And I'm going to pray that we all get unstuck a little bit. And we're going to look at this from a high level. It really won't be practical at all. Uh, I asked you to turn to Luke 16. Everybody knows these parables. Verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward. That's a manager. An accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. He called the man in. He said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, and you can no longer be a manager. The steward said within himself, what am, what am I going to do? I, uh, my master's taking away my stewardship. I can't dig. I, I'm ashamed to beg. So he resolved what he would do, that when he was put out of the stewardship, that he might be received into houses. Watch how this works. He cuts deals with all the people that owed his master money. Called every one of his masters, said, what do you owe? If they said 100, he cut it to 50. If they said, you know, 100 treasures of weed, he cut that to 50. Now, here's what's ironic, verse 8. The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly or wisely. And then Jesus said this, for the sons of this world are more wise in their generation than sons of light, than Christians are. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon or money, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting homes. Jesus said, whoever is faithful in what is least will be faithful in much, and he who is in just what is least will be faithful in much. And by the way, he's talking about money. D don't misquote that verse in this context. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you true riches. By the way, this is why one of the calls to be in ministry is to be able to lead your house wisely and to be able to have all of your accounts in order uh, later in the scriptures. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will ever give you what's your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, you can serve two masters, and I'm not disagreeing with Jesus. The problem is the translators use the word servant instead of slave. The real word here is slave, uh, because slavery by that time, you know, wasn't a good thing, so, so they changed the word. You can be a servant. I, I can work two jobs and have two bosses. It's not a problem. I can't be slave. I can't be tied to two people. You can't be tied to God and money. This man was unscrupulous. He's getting fired. He's unscrupulous after he's fired. Why in the world would Jesus commend this guy? It's a head scratcher. And here's why. This man understood what few Christians understand. He realized the money entrusted to him in his present situation could help him in his future situation. Everybody hear that? He realized that the money entrusted to him in his present situation could help him in his future situation. The first principle we need to unpack, and maybe you're stuck here, is that everyone needs to understand God owns everything. We are just his managers. Everybody get that? 
God said, I own the silver, it's mine. The cattle are mine. God said, it's all mine. God owns everything. Isn't this beautiful? He's made you a manager. We call it a steward. As Dave Ramsey would say, you're the Lord of a realm. Whatever God's put on your plate, you steward. And what the unjust uh, steward knew here or figured out was what we're managing here, we're managing for God. And we have one eye on eternity. It's not just what we're doing here. There is a life to come. What this parable teaches is that stewards, it's all about allocation. Remember what Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust and thieves break in the steel. Store up your treasure in heaven where none of that happens because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. One of the things we have to ask is, where is our treasure? This might unstuck you. Where is your treasure? Because that's where your heart will move in everyday life. Uh, try and help you with this. Uh, look up at the screen. No matter what income you have or what you are stewarding, it basically goes into three buckets. Spending, savings, and when you become a believer, there's a brand new thing called giving, right? We take a fist and God opens it. He's given us his grace and now we want to give. So uh, I researched uh, the best I could uh, proper allocation. This isn't biblical. This is just from, you know, money managers who have a Christian background. And the percentages I found is we should allocate 75% to spending, 15% to savings. And giving is tough because the Old Testament had a requirement of 10%. There is no requirement in the New Testament. God loves a cheerful giver as you've purposed in your heart. If it's 10%, wonderful. Some people are more or less. That's between you and God. But let's go with it for the purpose of today. Uh, then I found out what we're actually spending. Rebecca, put those numbers up. Uh, we're spending 130% of what we make. And you're probably saying, Pastor Bob, it's good that you're in the ministry because you must have failed at math. How can you spend more than you make? That's called Visa and MasterCard and mortgage and car payments. And you know the history of that in America. Uh, we don't save 44%, that's a misprint, that's 4%. And evangelicals, this isn't across the board Christians and denominations, this is evangelicals that read their Bible, give about 3%, it hasn't changed in 35 years. Now, here's how it works. The rest of the world goes left to right. Okay, the rest of the world goes left to right. I got my paycheck, I paid all my bills, noble thing. Oh, there's a little left over. I'll save. And uh, God? Uh, uh, God? Uh, yeah. That's how, that's how the world does it, right? Christians do it the other way around. We go right to left. Now, I'm shrinking a lot of biblical knowledge down for you. The first thing a Christian does is he says, what am I giving to God? This was called the tithe in the Old Testament. A tithe is a tenth, but it's more than that. It's off the top. So if a farmer had 100 apples, he would take the first 10 and give them to God. See, that's biblical allocation. Why do we do that? It's a sign that everything comes from God. Guys struggle here. Guys think they're self-made. I'm educated. I went to school. Listen, the oil in Saudi Arabia wasn't put there by man. It's put there by God. The seed that goes in the ground, God makes it 
produce. Everything comes. Every good gift comes from God. Even your intellect and capacity to be an entrepreneur and all that comes from God, right? When we give, it's a sign that God comes first. It's a sign that God has given me this. And listen to this. It's a sign that he will resupply. If there's any area Christians are lacking in, it's the law of resupply. The idea that when I give to God, he'll give back to me. See, this moves it from a method to a relationship. I get in the game with God. This is why Paul said, I haven't refrained to teach you about giving and receiving. It's a wonderful truth. So a Christian says, okay, here's what I'm going to give to God. Here's what I'm going to save. Proverbs says a fool spends all his money. Uh, Like the ant, we're saving for a rainy day or calamity. And then we get to spend the rest. How cool is that? How cool is that freedom? Spend the rest, okay? So how are you doing in your allocation? When was the last time you looked at your allocation? Uh, Mike Montgomery earlier shared that uh, he and his team came to me one day and they said, Pastor Bob, we have a cool idea. We're going to make all events free. I'm like, what do you mean free? There's nothing free. Somebody's paying for it. What's that mean? He said, uh, what it means is... uh, When we do an event like bowling and it's $20, uh, the leaders are free, the kids are free, and anybody they invite is free. And reflexively, I I had two thoughts. Number one, uh, this must be God because it's the last thing I'd ever do. Last thing I'd ever do. And the second thing I thought is everybody who's ever done youth ministry before you will hate you with this model. But here's what's cool about Mike. It wasn't willy-nilly. He went back and looked at three years of spending, made a budget, reallocated the money and promised he would come in at the same budget. And he said, I want to reallocate this money because this is the way we're going to reach kids. We're going to take them bowling. We're going to take them to Sky Zone. We're going to take them to these places. And then we're going to invite them into church. Yeah. You might be stuck in the allocation process in your stewardship. You might be stuck in not realizing that God has made you a steward you may be stuck thinking one day you're not going to give account. What does God care most about? People. Where does God want resources to go to? People. Job was the most righteous man in the world. When his calamity came on him and all his friends said, Job, you know, you must have done something wrong. Constantly he would say, I sat at the gate. I helped the orphan, right? See, See, we provide for the local church, we provide for ministry, we provide for those people in need, and every person who follows Christ must think about allocation. Turn a couple pages back to Luke 12. We'll stick with the same theme, but draw out a different point. Verse 13, this is well known. A man came out of the crowd and said to Jesus, help me and my brother divide the inheritance. Jesus said, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, that's greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And so he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain man yielded plentifully, right? God God yielded it. And he thought within himself, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this, I'll build, I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger barns that I can store up my crops and goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. 
You're set for life. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man, I'm sure, was industrious, entrepreneurial. He did all the right things. He worked hard. And then something happened to him that happens to a lot of us and happens to almost everybody in America. He had excess. He had more than enough. The man is called a fool for a few reasons. Number one, he believed this life was all there was. Number two, he believed there was actual security in this life through money. He believed that he only had to take care of himself and not, not, not have any regard for others. And he certainly didn't understand the law of resupply. You know what I really believe? I believe if this man had looked for ways to bless God and help people, he still would have had to build bigger barns. I really do. Because I've read about it in the Bible and I've seen people do this. I've seen people give and God resupplies and they get more. And it's happened in my life and I think he still would have had to build a bigger barn and he would have done even more. But he didn't understand any of this. One thing every believer has to do is decide what will be my standard of living. What will be my standard of living? God's not going to tell you. You have to come up with it. Now, the Bible speaks against extreme poverty. That's ridiculous. Uh, extreme wealth, right? I don't think that's in the cards either. But everybody's got to think in this culture, what is the standard of living that I will live in? Second thing we have to kind of unpack is when is enough enough? Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. He wrote it thinking it might help some young people in their faith sell about 10,000 copies or so. It sold 25 million copies, which made him a very rich man. And uh, when Rick Warren made all that money, he made four decisions, he and his wife. Number one, they wouldn't increase their standard of living. They weren't going to buy a new home or a big boat or anything like that. Number two, he became a reverse tither. He'd live off 10% and give away 90. Uh, number three, he calculated in 20 years of pastoring his church what he made, and he wrote the church back a check. So when anybody asked him how much he made, he'd say, I just do this for fun. I don't make any money. That's kind of cool. And then number four, he and his wife picked a mission they would support for the rest of their lives. When you make decisions like that and live by values financially, the world takes notice. Wall Street Journal found out about it, wrote a very positive article because it's so countercultural and so biblical. Everybody has to figure this out. Everybody has to live by values. A lot of you might be stuck in your giving. Here's what I mean by that. Your giving's probably methodical, predictable, unimaginative, uninspiring, like what's in my right pocket versus my left pocket. The Bible talks about intentional giving, setting aside, preparing in your heart ahead of time. Talk to a young guy who's doing quite well in our church, mid-30s, and uh, he told me he had a kind of thing with he and God for 2019, that he was only going to give to ministries that he can volunteer at. Now, let me show you what happens when you make a value like that. When you live by values, here's what happens. Anybody but me annoyed when you go to a place like Wegmans and they tell you the bill and they say, would you like to donate 
to their charity? Anybody like not like that? Yeah, I don't like it at all because when I say no, which I do, I feel like a heel. I feel like an ingrate. I feel like I have like a pitchfork in my hand, right? This guy just spent all this money on pizza, but he won't give a dollar to like the United Way. But if you live by values, you can say, I only give to those things I volunteer for. Isn't that cool? Now, I'm not saying that's what we all do. I'm saying this is what this young gentleman decided. He got creative in his giving. Ran into another guy who's older, who has enough money, but he's driving for Uber because he likes to drive and he's giving all his money to a particular ministry. I thought that was really good. Read about a guy who became a Christian, found out about 10% goes to God. He thought he couldn't get there. He heard a story about like training wheels, like start giving two, then three. Guess what he's up to? 30%. And he talks about the law of resupply. One of the things I've been talking about for 10 years is secretive giving. This is giving that's under the radar. No bookkeeper knows what you're giving. No one's going to write you a tax deductible statement. This is between you and God and the people you're giving to. The first principle is God owns everything, we're only managers. The second principle is my heart will always follow the money trail. Always. And Jesus said we can take unrighteous mammon and by giving it we can start sending it away for what's going to happen in eternity. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards and things of that nature. The last scripture I'm going to give you is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Classic verse, where Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, he knew nothing of America, but boy, if there's any scripture that speaks to us, it's this. Command those who are rich in this present age. And he's going to give a set of criteria. Uh, some of you are going to go home, and you never knew this, and you're going to tell a relative, I went to church today and found out I'm one of the richest people in the world. There's a book that has drilled down the world to 100 people. And then it goes through how many people have clean drinking water, food, two-car garages, uh, access to libraries. It is astounding. And when you go through, we are the rich in this world. We're the 1%. Now, you've been sold a lie through advertising and such that even with all you have, you don't have enough because you're basing it on this culture standard. But we are the rich in this world. And uh, I'll wrestle you to the ground on that one, okay? I don't care where you are, and I've lived in all kinds. I grew up in a row home. We never owned our... I, listen, we are the rich in this world. For some reason, we've been placed here. You had nothing to do with that. Now, it's wonderful, right? Every time I leave Israel, my, my guide tells me, you're going back to paradise. By the way, it's why nobody wants to die here. Even as Christians, we don't want to die. We have it so good, right? Paul said... No amens on that. That's interesting. <laughs> Maybe that heart surgery is happening. Command those who are rich in this present age, so I'm obeying, not to be haughty, don't be prideful thinking it's, you know, you've arrived, nor trust in the uncertainty of riches, right? Your soul could be required of you today. But here's the encouragement. But we should trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. These casual desires, God wants you to enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with buying things and enjoying things. And, you know, he, richly, he gives us these things to enjoy. However, verse 18, let them do good. 
They're rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. There it is again. That they may lay a hold of eternal life. Now, do not misread this scripture. It's not saying if you give, you'll get eternal life. That's ridiculous. It's saying there is another life to come and your stewardship in this life will tell a lot about what you're going to be entrusted to in the next. Third principle that we glean from this is that giving is the only antidote, the only antidote to materialism. We live in the most materialistic culture that's ever existed on the face of the planet. And if we're ever going to break the back of greed and more, giving is the antidote. Randy Alcorn said this, the act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. It's saying, I'm not the point, he's the point. It doesn't exist for me, I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. It breaks the chains of mammon that would enslave me. As long as I still have something, I believe I own it. But when I give it away, when I relinquish control, power, and prestige, at that moment of release, the light turns on. The magic spell is broken. My mind clears. I recognize God's the owner, that I'm the servant, and others as intended beneficiaries of what God has trusted to me. Uh, this is why we don't have like sub-giving categories where we do it sometimes, but generally, and, and people come to us all the time, and I understand people who have the gift of giving want to do this. I want to give to a particular area. I get that. But I don't like the person who comes and wants to steer their giving. Because you know what they're still doing? They're still in control. The woman dropped two mites in and went on her way. And that was a corrupt system. There, there's a release when we let it go and we're not in control. Giving doesn't strip me of vested interest. Rather, it shifts my vested interest from earth to heaven, from self to God. Of course, money isn't all that I can give. Time, wisdom, and experience are wonderful gifts. Giving in any form breaks affluenza's fever. Giving breaks me free from the gravitational hold of money and possessions. Giving shifts me to a new center of gravity, heaven. Boy, does that pale in comparison to almost everything you've ever heard on TV and radio about the Christian life. Everything. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Your poverty doesn't impress him, neither do your riches. It's all his. You're just managing it. How do we get this eternal perspective? Is it just going to drop in from heaven? Does it come with salvation? When I read the Bible, two truths emerge. The first truth that emerges, I almost feel like I'm the only person God ever created. I read the Bible and I feel like I'm the apple of his eye and that he's not concerned with anybody but me. And then the other opposite truth is I feel insignificant. I'm a flower quickly fading. I'm like the grass who's here today and gone tomorrow. My life, Job said, is swifter than a runner, a mere shadow. New Testament, a vapor. And so when I read the Bible, this eternal perspective comes back into my mind. I renew my mind. Second thing is, we all should travel. Some people can't travel globally, although I would challenge you to always go on a missions trip. 
But you can travel locally. You can go to a lot of local partners we have. You start to listen to people's stories. You watch compelling videos. You read a book like Thirst. You challenge yourself. You get in the flow with God. You get unstuck. You get a part of what he's doing. Sarah Fraser in the Bronx and Adam Bruckner in Northern Liberties, we don't support them because we have to support somebody. We actually saw videos and we made lunches with them and we heard their stories. And you go volunteer and you begin to get involved with God and he resupplies. That's true giving. And all of a sudden you start to get unstuck. One of the reasons why we have to get unstuck is so we can do what God wants us to do. Uh, one of the videos I love from Dave Ramsey is there was a couple who took a course and got out of $100,000 of debt and finally could do what they had put off from a lifetime of God telling them to do, and that was to adopt from a foreign country. See, one of the reasons we want to get a ball and chain off of your foot is so you can wildly go after what God has for you. John D. Rockefeller in 1932 was the richest man in the world. Made his money in oil. It was the Gilded Age. He said this, I don't know if I believe with it, but I'll, you know, sounds reasonable. He said, I believe it's a religious duty to get all the money you can, fairly and honestly, to keep all you can, and to give away all you can. And that's exactly what he did. But listen to what he said, it's phenomenal. He said, I believe the power to make money is a gift from God. To be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind according to the dictates of my conscience. In such a way, he established a blueprint for the super rich who believe they are best placed to decide how their money may be most widely beneficial, independent of the opinions and governments and other established organizations. And a lot of super rich give their money away and many of us benefit from it and so do others. But it's not only the super rich. I read another story in Christianity Today of a man who owned a very modest home, Little Cape Cod, under a bridge in St. Louis. It's one of these guys who was in his 80s, and when he died, he had no relatives, so they had to kind of knock on the door and find out what happened to him. And uh, this man who had never had a car, lived into his 80s, you know, just minimalist lifestyle, they walked into the house, and they were shocked. His walls, literally, wall to wall, were covered with 120 Compassion and World Vision kids he had sponsored for 20 years. A guy with limited means made it a value that he would send his money to people less fortunate, laying up for eternal life. That man, when you get to heaven, will be steward over a whole planet, probably, when we get there. Okay? And maybe so will Rockefeller. I don't know. It's not the amount of money we have. Money behaves, guys. It'll do whatever you tell it to do. Money's not your problem. We're the problem. We gotta reallocate. We gotta look at these buckets. And then we gotta let the Spirit of God help us to get into the game. You do all these things, you'll get to on the road of being unstuck. And you can become that joyous, hilarious giver. You can watch God resupply. And we can go fight the causes that the whole world might hear and do what God's called us to do.